Good luck. Welcome, everybody. Uh, we see participant numbers uh, triggering in every second. Um, so while the counter goes up, let's just give it uh, one or two minutes uh, to allow people to get over the massive hurdle on clicking on the Zoom link and logging in. Uh, we have a fantastic show for everybody today. Um, and just a reminder up front, if you have questions, please leave them in the Q&A function. Also look at other questions and you can upvote them so that we make sure that the most popular uh, by audience questions will be addressed. We'll try to get through as many as possible, uh, but experience shows that we're not always able to do so. There's also a hashtag of today's webcast, hashtag Southeast Asia Connect. So please feel free to share on your favorite social media channels what you hear, what you feel is uh, shareable and inspires you. So we'll uh, get ready in just a few minutes. We're just crossing um, a big hurdle of uh, people uh, dialing in. Um, fantastic guests and we're very glad that we're getting them um, despite their, their busy schedules. And we just had a chat uh, prior to the webinar starting that with everybody seemingly being available through video chats, that uh, we, are, we all seem to be more busy than ever, <laughs> busier than uh, pre-COVID, at least for me. What about you, Chris? <laughs> yes, and which every day feeling the same. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it takes a bit of effort to remember that today's Thursday. Oh, it is, yeah. One of those short weeks where we have to um, push five days into four. That's right. Okay, shall we kick off? Let's uh, start. Great, so uh, welcome everybody to our webinar, Bringing the Sexy Back to Enterprise SaaS. Uh, this is the series for founders and investors of Southeast Asian startups. Connecting the Southeast Asian ecosystem uh, to the world. And it's brought to you by our friends and partners from uh, Northridge Partners and Precious Communications. Uh, together, we work with hundreds of entrepreneurs, investors, and deal makers across the region to help raise capital, uh, grow business, exit, and establish a fantastic communication strategy that helps you tell your story. And that's what we are all about, telling the story. So if you wanna share the story, please share it on your social media channels with the hashtag Southeast Asia Connect. So my name is Lars Fürdisch. I'm the co-host of Southeast Asia Connect, um, economist by study and storyteller by heart. Um, worked with uh, startups um, in, the, in, the, in the rough idea of 300, uh, 300 startups, 15 unicorns and supported M&A activities in excess of $10 billion uh, from a PR perspective, but I'm just the storyteller. 
the banker and the man with the numbers and the access to the capital is uh, our co-host, Chris. Good afternoon. My name is Chris Tran. I'm the head of Northridge Partners Asia, and we're simply delighted to work with Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to raise capital, grow their businesses, and at the right time, exit. Thank you everyone for making time to be on the webinar. And the topic for today is bringing the sexy back to enterprise SaaS. Now, according to Raymond James, despite current market volatility, enterprise SaaS companies are still commanding trading multiples of well over 10 times revenue. And as a subset of cloud, which features heavily in the most recent Bessemer 2020 cloud report, we saw that compared to 2018, where the top five SaaS companies had a market cap of 14 billion, barely a decade later in 2020, compared to 2018, the top five companies had a market cap of 600 billion. That's right. The top five companies comprising of Adobe, Salesforce, PayPal, ServiceNow, and Shopify command $600 billion of market cap, which is a 50 times increase of the equivalent top five market cap in 2008. And whereas the adoption in 2000 was negligible and remained that way to around 2005 in terms of enterprises using SaaS or cloud software, today, globally, nearly 95% of all enterprises use SaaS, enterprise SaaS software. In Southeast Asia, apart from Singapore, the adoption of enterprise SaaS has been relatively weak. However, in today's environment, is it worth taking a closer look? Lars? Yes, and uh, just the latest numbers by Gartner IDC say that traditional um, IT budgets will actually shrink, but cloud and SaaS platforms are on the rise and that's what it's all about. So before we kick it off with our fantastic guests, let's launch the poll for all our participants. Um, the question is that we, despite it being 2020, uh, we see that especially in Southeast Asia, cloud adoption is still shockingly low. So how long will it actually take? How long will it take to change cloud adoption to over 50%? Is it one year, three year, or a decade, or never? So if we can launch the poll, um, our participants should be able to see that, to look into how long will it really take? Because SaaS is not a new topic. Um, we had a few waves of ups and downs, um, but I think with the economic impact of working from home, every organization, every enterprise is forced to digitalize now more than ever. And uh, cloud is one of the platforms uh, that's much easier to support you than if you have on-premise installations. Reminder, our hashtag, Southeast Asia Connect. And if you have questions, and I see the first ones already coming in, please leave them in the Q&A section. Um, and over to Chris to introduce our guests. Now, you certainly didn't tune in to hear Lars, or <laughs> let alone myself, speak all the time. So I'm really pleased to have today Anvesh, who runs Mass Mutual Ventures, based in Singapore. And he's recently just raised his second fund, at 100 million, and as well, Sinu, CEO of Tiger, the largest and fastest growing enterprise SaaS AI platform in Southeast Asia. To start the conversation, Anvesh, firstly, 
congratulations on your second fund. It's obviously an endorsement of the work that you're doing here in Southeast Asia. Can you please share with us a little bit about Mass Mutual Ventures and the motivations behind the second fund? Absolutely. Firstly, thank you for having me, guys, and uh, hello, everyone. Um, so Mass Mutual Ventures is a global uh, venture capital fund with offices in Boston, Singapore, and London. Uh, and we manage sort of three different funds for each region. So I co-head the Singapore-based fund where we focus on investing in enterprise software, digital health, and financial services companies across uh, Southeast Asia, India, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, we prefer to invest at the Series A and Series B stages and help the company scale globally after we invest. Um, when it comes to sort of our motivation behind sort of investing in this region, I think we started Fund One back in 2018 with a very long-term view on Southeast Asia uh, and its potential to generate great investment opportunities. Sorry, I see a poll pop up. Um, uh, generate great investment opportunities and back exceptional entrepreneurs in this region. Uh, and after deploying uh, and reserving uh, all of Fund One, I think uh, we were fortunate enough uh, to have the support of Mass Mutual Financial Group, which is our parent company, uh, who's helped us sort of with a second $100 million fund to continue investing in this region. I think that also underscores sort of our commitment to the region and our long-term vision of finding sort of the, the probably some of the best investment opportunities uh, out here. Now, for those of us that don't know, Mass Mutual is a very small $30 billion revenue financial services group in uh, a small state in the US, right? It is. It's based in uh, Massachusetts, as you can tell from the name. <laughs> um, so yeah, our parent company is a very large life insurance company. It's a Fortune 100 company and also one of the largest asset managers in the world. Um, so. We are a corporate VC fund at the end of the day, but uh, what we like to say is that we offer the best of both worlds. We are a returns driven fund, so we operate as an independent fund, but we are able to provide the strong strategic support that a global ecosystem like Mass Mutual can provide if our portfolio companies want it. Yeah, thank you, Anvesh. And you're obviously quite a familiar face in the Southeast Asian ecosystem, and it's great to have you on. Uh, the webinar, but for our guests, which are listening in from all over the world, um, if you could kindly provide just a little bit of background on yourself individually, and in particular, that uh, other small deal that you may or may not have led. <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> um, so I moved to Singapore. So I started my career as an investment banker with City uh, in Mumbai. Uh, about a year later, I moved to Hong Kong, where I was part of the TMT investment banking team. Did that for about seven years, decided to move over to venture capital sites. So back in 2014, I moved to Singapore, uh, where I joined the founding as one of the founding members of a, of a fund called Open Space Ventures now. Back in the day, it used to be called NSI Ventures. Um, so yeah, we've, uh, I was there for about four years, where uh, along with the partners there and the rest of the team, we invested in several very well-known companies in the region like Gojek and CXA, to just to name a few. Um, in 2018, uh, so I left and along with my business partner, Ryan Collins, we set up the Mass Mutual Ventures Singapore Fund. Um, yeah. And since then, we've invested in about nine companies. Hopefully, the ninth company will announce the deal next week and you'll, you'll be able to see that soon. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Anvesh, time to pick your brain. On your website, you talk about enterprise software as a focus. 
Do you really believe that now's the time for proper adoption of enterprise software in Southeast Asia? And why? I mean, categorically, we've definitely seen waves of business models and products and services that have worked in other markets that just simply haven't made it here and dismally failed to its promise. Um, so the first question, yes, I think there's absolutely, uh, there will be an increased adoption of enterprise SaaS and software companies in Southeast Asia. Uh, so to answer the rest of your question, I think one thing you have to understand is the fundamental difference uh, between some of the Western markets and the Asian markets. Um, I think, especially in Southeast Asia, most countries, maybe with the exception of Singapore, have skipped a generation of technology or maybe sort of evolved very quickly through generations of technology. Like just a few years ago, uh, people were looking at low bandwidth desktop based internet for uh, access. And now people have 4G within the span of less than a decade. So I think uh, that's one of the biggest sort of differences between some, some of the other markets in Southeast Asia. Um, two, fundamentally, the way businesses are conducted in, in, in Asia in general are also very different. So I think People have to understand that as well. Um, so you see, apart from maybe very large enterprises, most companies today are leapfrogging from what are very manual or paper-based processes to adopting SaaS solutions to address the same. And we've seen some, I guess, a, a very large increase in adoption in some services, especially uh, with large enterprises with very large customer bases when it comes to automating certain manual processes. Think, think customer service, using chatbots to automate the customer service using robotic process automation to automate data entry, for example. Um, and apart from that, you also see now an increased wave of adoption in other services like cybersecurity, for example, um, and enterprise communication, like gone are the days of using an instant messenger to communicate with your colleagues. Now everyone uses Slack. So yeah, I think there's definitely uh, uh, going to be increased adoption. And one final point I'd like to touch on is the cost of human capital itself. I think salaries continue to rise, especially in Southeast Asia. There's a lot of demand for talent. So companies, to, in order to remain competitive, have to, have to think about other alternatives to increase their margins. And I think SaaS is definitely the way to do that. Thank you very much. And in terms of when we look at, the fact is, is that enterprise software has been for a while. Uh, then with the adoption of cl cloud, we really saw more consumer SaaS-like offerings first, right? Yep. Um, and now when we're looking at this pivot back to enterprise SaaS, from an investor and financial uh, point of view, what do you see in the space in terms of the attraction? Is it the recurring revenue model? Um, has COVID-19, if anything, uh, really changed or accelerated um, some of the trends that were pre-existing? Um, I think uh, the, the trends were always there. They might have uh, accelerated because of the recent COVID situation. Um, you're right in the sense that there, consumer SaaS companies have seen a more rapid adoption in Southeast Asia than enterprise solutions. But I think that's what we're hoping that a lot of companies in the region will also address. Uh, you now are looking at a young working population here in the region, people who are used to mobile services and using their smartphone including blue collar employees, everyone has a smartphone these days. So I believe that there's a lot of scope for SaaS companies uh, in the region which move away from 
pure desktop-based solutions to more mobile-friendly approaches with shorter workflows, we'll see increased adoption, for example. Um, and in terms of other, like market attractiveness, uh, you see a lot of talent being developed in the region now, especially in areas like data science and machine learning and cybersecurity. Uh, and it, these are the guys who are going to come in. Traditionally, in the, in the last few, for example, if you look at the market five, six years ago, there was a, a shortage of talent in terms of product management, in terms of uh, technical talent. A lot of that, a lot, a lot of those bottlenecks have now been addressed. And I think we're seeing a wave of companies emerge from this region, which are not, not just looking to tackle the Southeast Asian market, but are looking at providing solutions for a global market. So yeah, I think that's what makes it very attractive for us. In addition to sort of the financial aspects as well, which is recurring revenue, stable cash flows and so on. Fantastic, thank you for providing that investor point of view. Uh, that's really helpful. And just really delighted to now have Sinu uh, as well. And Sinu, can you tell us a little bit more about Tiger for those of us that uh, aren't familiar? And also maybe, you know, you, you, um, your LinkedIn profile says you're a self-declared wartime CEO. What gets you an extra badge? Uh, yeah, I think building a, building a um, hyper-growth tech, uh, hyper tech company from the ground up is, is a war, right? You always are war solving problems um, across all fronts. So pretty much like a battle every day. Uh, winning battles day by the day, you, you end up winning the war, right? So uh, I, I read that from a book um, from uh, Horowitz, uh, the investor. I pretty much like it and I just um, adopted it, right? And there's a great difference between peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs, uh, different skills, different profiles, different type of companies. And I, I thought it was catchy. I like it. I, I think it resonates very well with my day to day. So just, just put it there. Yeah. Great, fantastic. So, so tell us, you know, your, a little bit of the war stories and where did you bring Tiger to? What, what's, what's Tiger's big, big battle win so far? Where do you stand? Well, I think Chris put it very nicely before. We are uh, probably one of the fastest or most definitely one of the fastest growing AI B2B companies in Southeast Asia, uh, Europe, and um, yeah, excluding China probably uh, across the world. Um, we serve financial institutions, government, and industry in general, uh, overcoming many of the limitations of, of all the limitations of traditional machine learning. Uh, we use human-like logic to read, understand, and extract information from, uh, from unstructured documents. Uh, our value proposition is around uh, guaranteeing the accuracy of the information extraction, which is 90-95% uh, whereabouts. That means massive cost reduction, but also product differentiation. Uh, when we do mortgages or we do loans, can be done much faster. The money is not on the spread, uh, the money is on the volume. So uh, financial institutions find it beneficial to differentiate their product offering, and that in turn um, affects the, the top line, not just the bottom line. Um, yeah. So, so how did how did a Spanish Spanish boy end up, uh, you know, building that empire out of Singapore? No, not empire yet, but I'm after world domination, so we'll get there. <laughs> uh, I did my I did my MBA at Chicago Booth Executive MBA, and back in the day, they used to have a campus in Singapore. Uh, the business started in Europe. I did a stint in uh, in the U.S. We're not very successful there. 
And then I started to look and uh, I realized growth is happening in, in this part of the world, underserved markets, um, very high appetite to try new things, um, a lot of growth, a young population, even though we are not a B2C and that's typically the driver, but, but that also affects in the, in the B2B space. Uh, so altogether, uh, we realized there could be a tremendous opportunity here. Uh, through my network, uh, Chicago Booth, I started to connect very fast and very well uh, with different stakeholders in Singapore. Uh, we found a tremendous uh, ground for building with, uh, with the government, uh, very keen to have uh, deep tech B2B businesses built here. It was very soil, very fertile soil for us, and we, we found a, a, a big uh, a big help. And and then uh, from there we started building, right? And of course, uh, the fact that my wife is Vietnamese didn't play a factor, <laughs> and um, we love the weather as well. So. Great. Um, so um, you you said you've been uh, growing very fast. Can you maybe share a little bit about what makes Tiger, um, you know, to to uh, show our audience or share with our audience what are some of the metrics that that show that growth for a SaaS company like yours? Yeah, when we focus on our SaaS metrics, some of them are really off the charts. Like uh, if you look at our LTV to CAC, uh, the industry average is around three times. Uh, we are 10 times LTV to CAC, uh, which means we are tremendously uh, profitable in that in that sense. Our five-year uh, KAGR from 2017 to 2022 is going to be around 90%. Uh, we have been growing 2x year over year since uh, 2017. Uh, zero ARR churn. Uh, this is something that we are extremely proud of. Actually, we have negative churn. And, um, um, and, and, and actually, during even during this period that is is proven challenging for for everyone and no one is coming you know untouched out of this this is the reality uh we are very blessed that nearly 50 percent of our targets are coming from a pre-existing multi-year contract this is the backlog right mm. so uh 50 percent of our revenue is secure uh to our as very very uh correctly uh Ambes was saying uh from previous years is steady cash flow, recurring cash flow. This is what differentiates um, ARR, uh, sorry, B2B businesses from um, B2C. So despite those metrics and, and you know, having a fantastic product, what do you think are other factors that help you to get into that growth lane? Well, I think um, it's scalability and measurability, right? Um, um, for example, machine learning uh, suffers uh, from the fact that, you know, it's very labor intensive. You need a lot of data scientists to build the models, to maintain the models, et cetera, et cetera, right? We've overcome all those limitations. Our business model our sale is moving from consultative to very transactional. Uh, that gives us a lot of scalability, a lot of ability to, to build very fast, uh, add new accounts, close new accounts, reduce. The, the, the sales time, the time to production uh, tremendously, right? Um, our technology stack is broader uh, and that's a, a very relevant uh, very relevant point as opposed to just looking at one part of AI. We understand uh, the broader scope. If you ask me, I, I don't know much about machine learning. That might sound like, a, what is this guy talking about? That's all there is in AI. <laughs> well, the fact is that my PhD was not even in, a, in machine learning. I'm not an statistician, which is the foundation of uh, on machine learning, 
my PhD was in the field of knowledge representation and automatic reasoning. The foundation of that is logics. And that, when, when you put all those things together, you have a, a bigger toolbox. You are able to solve um, more problems, right? So this allows us to, uh, you know, to quicker deployments, guarantee accuracy. All our tools are no code. So that means you, Lars, or Chris, or Ambes, or any of, any of the persons in our audience could use this tool to build new models, to maintain new models by themselves. They don't need us. Uh, that saves the cost and the need. We are not anymore hunting for extensive engineers. We are hunting for people that understand particular businesses, particular industries, and help us build or build themselves those, uh, those models. Um, and that, you know, um, we are adding 50 languages to the platform this year. So it's all about, you know, scalability. And I, I believe that is, uh, that is what has been confirmed today uh, and hope uh, going forward, what investors and, and the market is uh, interested in. Okay, then maybe it's a last question. And then uh, also we want to hear Enver's um, point on that. So Sinos, you said, that you said Southeast Asia is such a great opportunity. You told me that um, it's, it's more, it's a better opportunity here for you than compared in the US or China. Um, wh what makes Southeast Asia so special for you? And uh, aren't you worried from those, you know, from those big giant kind of markets that the competition at one time will, will just come over? I love that question, Lars. Um, so two <laughs> things, right? So we, when, when you're building a, a venture from the ground up, uh, cash, is king, right? So you have limited supplies of cars, but investors want tremendous returns. So you have to make the best out of the money that you've got. So now you have two options. You concentrate in the markets that you understand very well. Uh, this is your bread and butter. For us, it's Southeast Asia frontier markets. We are present all the way from South America, Middle East to Southeast Asia. Or you go where everybody goes. Now you go to the US and I had that experience. You have to spend a lot of money, um, sales, is very expensive, so it's stuff. Marketing is very important in the US, uh, but technology with good marketing sells all the way. Good technology with bad marketing doesn't go anywhere. So you have to put the money. Now, in the, in, in the midterm, you might get there, but investors are not waiting for the midterm. You are going to raise your next round in one year or two years. So you need to solve those numbers. Um, so we decided very early, we're, we are not going to do that. We are very focused on giving return to our investors. Our numbers are off the charts in that sense. Um, and that is because we didn't, we didn't go and spend in marketing in, in, in these very expensive uh, marketplaces. We concentrated in what we know and, uh, and built from there. I think that is the key. Just focus on, on what you know and profit from the low hanging fruit. Now, post series C, that's uh, probably for us a different conversation. When you have big coffers, big amount of money, well then, you can go to the US, you can go to Europe, which are traditionally also slower moving markets in decision making. Now, when it comes to China, it's a completely different value proposition. Uh, the problem with China is IP. Yeah. Uh, and this is the only thing we have. Yeah. Uh, so unless you have someone that, you know, an investor, Chinese investor willing to take you there, protect you in that environment, I mean, the rest of the world is very big. Uh, yeah. So will we go to China? Well, maybe eventually if we get that level of comfort uh which at the moment we don't we don't necessarily feel fantastic thanks Sino. over to you anvesh um Sino said you know without the big money you shouldn't go into an expensive market like the us um it's you know what what he described as his journey a little bit also the focus that you are looking in those pearls that that grow here in southeast asia and then you would be some of those guys that help them 
enter the U.S. and, and can somebody survive without the U.S. on a global scale? Um, yeah, I think people can definitely survive without the U.S. as a key market. Though, obviously, I mean, it is one of the largest markets for SaaS or any other services, so you should look at the U.S. Um, but yeah, so you're exactly right. I think that's where we sort of we come in as well as investors. So we provide the access, not just from the U.S., but in many other countries uh, through sort of the global ecosystem that we have with Mass Mutual. Um, so yeah, we can open doors in the U.S. and potentially in Japan, in Hong Kong, uh, maybe China. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, so I think Sino also sort of hit the nail on the head there. I think you have to have your GTM strategy mapped out before you expand to a new market. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that many young SaaS companies face in the region. Um, because it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of a solution, right? I mean, you have to sort of tailor your product to the audience that you're selling it to as well. Um, so that's why, conversely, a lot of large U.S. SaaS companies find it very difficult to um, achieve adoption here as well. Because, yeah, I mean, will Workday or any of these other sort of companies come here and so be able to just plug and play? No, I mean, you have such a heterogeneous market in Southeast Asia with its own, each with its own law and like labor laws and tax regulations and so on and so forth. So I think the, the entrepreneurs who are based here, who are starting companies here, understand the market better and then they can create solutions that cater to uh, the sort of the regional audience. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, uh, Sinu and, and Vesh. Moving away from artificial intelligence for a moment, Anvesh, clearly in this time, what we're seeing is a lot of people working from home using personal devices and then coming down the pipe with 5G, for example, there'll be a greater surface area for cyber attacks. Is cybersecurity an area that you're looking at in terms of enterprise SaaS or software as well? Very actively. Uh, we are currently looking at two opportunities in cybersecurity where we're, I guess we're in very advanced stages of discussions and potentially uh, look to complete investments in those two companies in the coming few months. But uh, you're absolutely right. I think even before 5G, I mean, with the increase of cloud storage solutions that people are using, for example, with an increased online presence, uh, there's, a, there's a much larger, there's a much larger risk of digital threats today than there ever was before especially in Asia. And I think the COVID situation has also exacerbated that to a large extent. Um, so yeah, you definitely need solutions. I think we look at this from a sort of a three-pronged approach. Uh, most companies are looking at detecting. Um, and then the next phase will obviously be to remove that threat, remediation of those threats. But I think we are also looking to move into the other sort of horizontal space where you are able to predict digital threats before they happen because there's so much data that the co companies are collecting now that you can use that to sort of create your own tools to predict uh, attacks. Mm. So yeah. we have artificial intelligence, we have cyber, and back to you, Sunu, for, I guess, the benefit of the audience, what we've seen is a lot of enterprise SaaS uh, do well in terms of banking and um, financial services initially, but just for the audience, can you give a bit of a sense of, you know, some of your customers and across what sectors they are in? Yeah, so we work uh, extensively with financial institutions, the like of uh, Banco Santander in Spain and uh, South America, BBVA, 
I come from Spain, so that, that might explain things. Uh, but also global banks, uh, standard charter, uh, global banks in this part of the world, or uh, regional banks like OCBC or Macquarie. Uh, government of Singapore is, uh, we are serving them quite extensively as well, but also across industry, uh, all, the way, all the way from health to energy, right? And um, that's probably the key characteristic of our platform that we try to build in, in a in a cross vertical way, right? The problem that we solve is not um, specifically for financial industries, uh, reading documents, understanding information, extracting data, something that happens across uh, every industry, right? And we build a company and our product offering uh, with that very value proposition in mind. Thank you, Sunu. And the reason why I asked you that question is I would like your perspective because you have so many uh, enterprise clients. Apart from artificial intelligence and cybersecurity, what are they telling you that they're demanding in terms of other enterprise SaaS products or services? Is it um, cloud data? I, I, I think um, we are going to see a very different world post-COVID, right? Um, I think uh, one of the beneficial aspects, if there is any, to the situation that we're living is that automation is going to be part of the business continuity plans of every business. Um, so based on that, any solution that helps uh, not just digitization or digitalization, automation, and, and automation that doesn't require human intervention because we have some level of automation now, but you know, if you cannot go to work for whatever reason, but your business needs to continue operating, you have to find a way to do that, right? So I think there is going to be a tremendous push towards technologies that help automation that are scalable, uh, that are easier to sell in a transactional way as opposed to, you know, very consultative. Um, yeah, and, and support this long-term vision building uh, for the businesses and, and the industry. Great. Now we've got an absolute avalanche of questions. So uh, before we get onto that, my favorite section, Lars, for the rapid fire, please. Good. So we have a few questions and we want both of you just answer either way. It's an either or question and just maybe a one sentence answer, right? So let's directly jump. One word, one word. Yeah. Um, so um, enterprise SaaS, premium, premium or paid only? Anvesh. Paid only. <laughs> <laughs> of course, people that want to collect money, I see that. Um, Southeast Asia SaaS, software as a service or software and a service? Um, I think it started off as software and a service, but it's quickly evolving to software as a service. So, you know, part of your journey, right? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, you probably need both. Some some customers demand both, but um, ideally, it's just the first. Okay. AI widely misunderstood or massively over overhyped? <laughs> A bit of both. Massively <laughs> misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Cybersecurity <laughs> service or enterprise will enterprises will finally buy. Uh, enterprises will definitely buy. Okay, good. Those were the rapid fire questions. Thank you. Thanks, Lars. And on to um, the, the part that everyone is waiting for, and that's the pitch. Now, Anvesh has just got $100 million, is <laughs> open for business. And the question on everyone's mind is, Anvesh, 
what are the things not to say to you? What are the things not to say <laughs> to make sure that you do not run away from the um, founders in our audience? <laughs> uh, that, that's, a, that's a very tough question to answer. I'll, I'll maybe say what I like to hear. Um, and I realizing that every entrepreneur is different and everyone has their own way of pitching. I think uh, for me, what I like to understand in the first meeting is what problem are you trying to solve? Why are you the person to solve it? And what is your strategy to solve that problem, right? If you can answer these three questions, you have my attention. It doesn't matter if you can answer that to me in like five minutes or in the first 45 minutes, it doesn't matter. Uh, those are the most important questions that need to be sort of addressed when you're in a first meeting with me. Um, then we dive into other details, like how good is your product and so on and so forth, but yeah. For me, anyone who can't answer that, like I've had pitches where people like people talk for an hour and I walk away from the meeting thinking, what the hell does a business actually do? Like, what are they, what are they actually trying to do? So that's a no-go for me. Yeah. If, I, if, if uh, the CEO and the founders of the business can't explain the business to me in, in, in an hour, then yeah, something's not right. Thank you. Okay. You know, from a, from a right. PR perspective, that, that's something that we, we discuss a lot with our clients. It's like, mm -hmm. nobody cares about your solution if people are not even aware what's the problem you try to solve, right? Um, over Sino for, for the question, um, how has your own pitch changed over time? You know, you're around for about a decade with, with Tiger. How has your pitch evolved? Yeah, I think practice makes perfect, right? So um, I'm, a tech, I'm an engineer by background. I taught myself how to program when I was 10 years old. So I started explaining technology. And then you realize investors are not really interested, as, uh, at least in the first meeting, on, on your technology. They want to understand your business, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, and I went through many iterations to try to simplify uh, what I thought it was simplifying, but it actually was making it understandable for, for the people. And, and, and you struggle with that, I struggle with that a lot because I was like, how much simpler do I need to make it? But still you need to get there. Uh, so now my, my explanation of the business tends to be a lot more, um, you know, explaining the, the, the things that investors are interested or that the audience is interested, uh, leaving aside all technical aspects. Like when we say, we taught software how to read. I mean, that's relatively simple statement to understand. It can unfold in many things. How you do it is irrelevant, it's, it's, it's more what you do and what is the value that you create. So I tend to focus more on that. Okay, that's great. So Lars, what did the poll tell us? Let's have a look at a poll to, to kick off also the Q&A. Uh, Ash, the, the magic wizard behind the, the webinar um, sees, okay. Uh, despite being 2020, many enterprises across Southeast Asia still haven't really uh, adopted cloud. How long will it take? So the audience says three years to a decade. So a long way up. Uh, I'm sure Unvesh's kind of investor philosophy is a little bit more shorter term than a decade. And I'm sure also Sino is uh, kind of proof that it might go a little bit faster. Thanks everybody for, for sharing. So let's move into the Q&A from the audience. Uh, and the lighthearted one that came in was, um, <laughs> Sino, you're um, a uh, Vietnamese-Spanish couple, it must be fantastic food at home. It is, it is, I love it. And, and Han is a great cook, so uh, now, uh, like normally this is in Vietnam, I'm in Singapore and we meet the weekends. Now we are together, I, I complain. It was a new marriage, I didn't sign up for that. 
but the food, see, it's a great cook, so I'm extremely happy. So all good in that. <laughs> okay, so every success, every successful meal needs the right ingredients. Um, same like, um, it's like, what are, the, what are the, the right ingredients for a major success of cloud um, SaaS? So that's the first audience question here, really like, what would you say are the driving factors that contributed to the major success of cloud SaaS so far? Anvesh, you want to give it a first shot? Sure. I think um, it's obviously addressing, I guess, inefficiencies in the way things are actually being done, right? So replacing manual or traditional processes with more automation, making it easier to get things done. I think that's one of the largest reasons why anyone adopts SaaS, enterprise SaaS, let me put it that way. Um, and couple that with the fact that uh, it's now SaaS as a business model, as, as a delivery mechanism using cloud, um, with increased adoption of cloud services, yeah, it becomes easier to then use SaaS, SaaS products as well. Um, I think looking at Southeast Asia in general, like where SaaS has been pretty successful are certain areas, as I mentioned earlier, where you are automating or replacing manual processes, right? So that's, that's I think, is what led, what's led to um, success of SaaS so far in Southeast Asia. Uh, not sure if that really answers the question, but feel free to sort of chime in here. Maybe we do an add-on question yeah. uh, that we have in there um, based on the success. What, what are some of the key metrics that investors like you would look into to, to assess, is it the right, right way to go? What are the kind of metrics that you look into say, are those guys on the right track? Yep. So uh, the first one is obviously pricing strategy and go-to-market strategy. I think these are two aspects of a SaaS business that are very important and often uh, this is where a lot of uh, entrepreneurs get it wrong as well. So on your pricing strategy, uh, I think to your earlier sort of rapid fire question as well, I think premium is not always right. I mean, especially when you're looking at large enterprises, they don't like premium. I mean, you give, a, you give them a very easy chance to just walk away uh, and you'll see a lot of churn with premium, right? So getting the right pricing strategy in place is fundamental, right? You have to look at what value you're bringing to the table and how best to capture value. Uh, that's what you should sort of uh, determine your pricing strategy. And the next one is again, a go-to-market strategy, depending on what industry vertical you're targeting or who your ultimate client is, tailoring your go-to-market strategy uh, is also fundamentally important. Um, I think uh, understanding the right, uh, or getting the right mix uh, between direct sales and uh, channel partnerships is also key. If you're working with a partner like IBM, for example, you might be one of a hundred different solutions that similar solutions that they're offering to their customers. How do you stand out? Um, and then understanding what your value proposition is. So that's uh, on the sort of more qualitative side. And on the quantitative side, you have the traditional SaaS metrics like customer acquisition costs, LTVs, uh, LTV to CAC ratios, and so on and so forth, right? So the usual stuff. We like to see- Sorry, an anonymous, <laughs> So an anonymous attendee has asked us the question of great initiative. What was the inspiration behind the title of this webinar? Um, it's the fault of our content creator genius, Gopal. So that's the answer to that question. And then moving on, we have another question from JP McCauley from Ireland. So hello. Inertia is one of the biggest barriers to adoption of B2B SaaS and enterprise software platforms. What do you see as the critical factors to drive adoption, both from a customer acquisition perspective 
and a customer use perspective to minimize churn perspective. Can you provide good examples of both? So, Sinu. Um, I, mean, I, I think the challenge is, um, and I totally agree with um, Anves, uh, the freemium model doesn't work, right? Is the, the, the biggest challenge is the time to close the deal. It doesn't matter if you give it for free or you charge a marginal amount of money, they are going to have to go through the motions. Um, then, you know, until it takes time to close the deal. Um, they are, depending on the industry, uh, like in financial uh, services, decisions are made by consensus and anyone can join and reset the whole process with sets back the whole uh, iteration, which make it very challenging uh, to work with them. But that is the beginning. Once they know you what, once you have the food on the door, once it's happening, then it just tends to scale if we are able to prove the, to prove the value. So I would say uh, closing the first deals, showing that you can actually deliver what you promise and then scaling uh, from there. And once you do that, uh, we don't have churn. So, I mean, it's, it's possible. Uh, you, you just continue uh, building, adding new services, new products, new stuff, and just continue growing onto, onto it. You said so time, time to close the deal. Um, yeah. And that leads us directly to our next question, because I think that affects closing deals right now. Um, how, how have you seen uh, Enterprise SaaS, especially your company, in particular, being been affected by the virus, by the whole COVID economic situation, um, and and what do you see is the medium to long term impact on that? Uh, maybe Sino can answer first, and I also ask Anvesh. Um, so, like everyone, uh, we felt uh, a slowdown in the business. We saw uh, payments starting to delay, coming late, POs uh, delaying, uh, contracts being dragged on, uh, and that was the first portion of it. Now, this month of May, we started to see a reverse on the trend. We start to see some urgency in catching up and making up for the lost, the lost time. I think people understand, well, this is how we're going to you know, be for a while. We have to make the best out of it. We, can, we have to continue. Automation is going to be part of our day-to-day. -day, and uh, the top management of different businesses is giving clear direction. Like, we, we have to embrace this this type of things. So actually the month of uh, May is been very good for us in the sense that uh, we are picking up. Uh, we are still not yet at the levels that we used to be, but it's not as bad as we perceive it to be. So we are starting to come out of, um, out of it. And I think the month of June is just going to be business as usual and, and go back to growth. Uh, we are hoping that again ourselves, we make up for the lost time and our revenue actually hits the milestone that we have set up for the year. I think across the industry, across the businesses, that is going to be a very challenging proposition, but um, we'll, we'll do the best we can. So congrats on a, on a strong May. Um, cheers to that. So you owe all of us, I think, virtual drinks for, for that shout out. Um, Anvesh, what, what do you see from your market view on how has the economic situation triggered by the virus affected the SaaS industry, especially here? Um, I guess it has been positive and negative depending on the kind of company you speak to. I think also depends on what industry they're addressing at the end of the day. So, uh, for example, cybersecurity, uh, they've seen a, a sudden decline in sales cycles, actually, at least the companies that we've spoken to have witnessed sales cycles sh shrink from about three to four months to two to three days in some instances, uh, because 
a lot of these enterprises are suddenly sort of looking at this with fresh eyes and understanding the the importance of having cybersecurity solutions um, in today's uh, sort of situation anyway. Uh, and then there are obviously other industries, um, other companies which have seen, as as Sino mentioned, like a slowdown during uh, during sort of the March April period, but have seen a, a resurgence in May again. Um, yeah, I think working capital cycles are going up. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges that companies will face during this year. Um, yeah, so your receivables will go up, and I strongly suggest people sort of get in any factoring solutions or anything possible to sort of help monetize that receivables uh, to address the short-term requirements. Uh, yeah. Good. Okay, fantastic. So Anvesh and Sunu, I mean, what are some of the, you know, mistakes that early founders can make? So, you know, I've got a brilliant idea and I'm just waiting, starting off. Um, maybe, you know, from yourself, Anvesh, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen in your portfolio companies? And Sunu, um, if you don't mind sharing, what are some of the mistakes that either you or maybe some of your uh, colleagues have made? And Vesh. Oh, sorry. Um, I guess mistakes that uh, I guess first-time founders make. Uh, I think I, I've mentioned this in at the beginning as well. So I think uh, identifying the right strategy, go-to-market strategy, I think is is paramount um, to success. You might have the best technology, you might have the best product to address that solution, but if you don't, if you don't think of your go-to-market strategy. Uh, as a strategy, it is, it is, you have to be very strategic about this. If you don't think through your go-to-market strategy, I think you tend to fail or experience a very high failure rate in the beginning. Two, I think part of that is also about identifying who your target customer is. I think that is of primary importance. Like if you take your solution to the wrong customer, obviously they're not gonna use it. You have to identify who your target customer is, who's likely to adopt it immediately and get those first few sort of large customers to adopt. And then that conversion cycle becomes a lot easier. So yeah, you have to have sort of your ideal customer base in mind. You have to have your list of companies who you absolutely want as a customer, go and address them, convert them, at least not all of them, if not all of them, at least some of them. And that would make the rest of the sort of growth journey much, much easier. Right. Because once you have yeah one, one large customer on, on your roster, then yeah, you'll have a lot of other people knocking on your door. Yeah. Um, Sino, you as a very young entrepreneur, <laughs> um, what are some of the mistakes that, that you wish you hadn't done? Or on the other side, you might, might think, okay, I made those mistakes when I started a SaaS company, but without, if, if I would have not made them, we wouldn't have had that massive key learning and it never got us to this big, wide, eye-open moment uh, that get us to pivot and be where we are right now. What, what are some of the uh, few key mistakes that you think were kind of uh, instrumental for your success? I honestly, I believe that the best thing of uh, that can happen to an entrepreneur is make mistakes. And if you, if you look at it on the positive side, that's the biggest lessons you learn, right? I mean, mis mistakes that don't kill you, of course. But um, um, I think that the biggest one is uh, there's uh, underestimation of what you are really doing. Uh, being naive, I was tremendously naive. My my project was when it started it was a, a bookcase case example of transition from academia. I, I, we took my thesis and we started to build it into a product. Right? You come with your scientist technologist mentality, uh, arrogant, naive, thinking, okay, I'm going to teach all these people how it's done. Uh, well, as as uh, Ambes said, one thing is 
you know, you know your technology, how is your, your go-to-market, how is your pricing, how is your positioning, what do you understand at all about this industry, right? So for me, that was a, a very interesting learning process. We, we learn a lot. And uh, I think that the biggest one is that one thing is the idea, and we all have tremendously good ideas every day. Implementation of that idea is a completely different thing. And, 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 and entrepreneurship is all about execution execute 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 your idea might be fantastic but if you don't are if you're not able to deal with all the hurdles cash flow people uh, hiring customers and it's solving problems yeah and and i like what you said you know where you said yeah. um but see i think we lost you for a second uh, but it's okay um you said one of the mis you said it was a mistake in the beginning uh, you, you were a little bit naive, and I, I can feel that when I started my company eight years ago. I think it was actually naivete that, that uh, prevented me from actually not starting. So I think it's a little bit of a mixed thing, right? You have to be a little bit uh, of a dreamer to even take that journey. <laughs> um, last question from the audience, and sorry for all of those that we can't answer. Um, have you seen many homegrown Asian or especially ASEAN SaaS companies expand abroad? How can a VC or other ecosystem players help with international expansion, especially in the context of cash is a little bit, you know, tight these days? Um, Sino, um, maybe, you know, you have some overseas offices. I think I saw Mexico on the list. Um, yeah. What helped you with your expansion? And then maybe Anvesh can give a final view on, on the globalization uh, portion. So first, internationalization is pretty hard. Uh, we touched on that before, understanding not just the culture of the country, but your customers, which are going to be taken differently, right? So when we went to any place, we went first, we tried to get a customer first. We, we didn't, we never went and said, okay, this is the pile of money that we're going to invest and let's hope for the best. We tried to get an account. This is how we went to Mexico. This is how we went to uh, Middle East, to Dubai. And then you grow from something. You can reinvest the proceeds of the project or whatever that you're getting. Um, I don't think it's the time now to um, internationalize more than your core markets. I think it's completely the upside. Um, cash flows are going to be tied for all of us uh, for the rest of the year. So what you have to do is go back to your basics. What is your core market? What are your core customers? Stay nimble, stay put, stay focused and um, profit from that. I mean, we saw, for example, um, a few companies in the RPA space cutting completely uh, their presence worldwide. I mean, WorkFusion completely cut uh, across the board, uh, everyone, right? Uh, they just retrenched to the US. I think that is, that is uh, part of, uh, you know, what, the survival strategy that everybody is, uh, is trying to focus on at the moment. Go back to the basics, go back mm -hmm. to the core. Thank you, Sino. Anvesh, um, same question from your point of view. How, how have you helped or what do you see is the biggest need or hurdles that um, SaaS companies, especially from this part of the world, need the support they need um, if they want to go out of this uh, ecosystem? Mm -hmm. I guess obviously the obvious one first is to have a product that's globally scalable on day one, right? Not, not something that's very specific to this region. Uh, beyond that, I think in terms of international scaling internationally, uh, I think I echo what Sinu said, uh, identify who your core customer is and what your core markets are, basically. Uh, international expansion doesn't mean you just start selling in every country from day one, right? So you have to identify 
where where it's more likely for someone to adopt your service or your product. That said, uh, what we sort of as uh, as VCs can also bring to the table is strategic introductions, right? We can't guarantee that someone will buy your service or product, but what we can do is make it a lot easier to get your foot in through the door. So we can open doors in the US, uh, in, in Europe, and in Asia as well. So just to give you an example, so Mass Mutual owns strategic minority stakes in Nippon Life, Yunfeng Financial, for example, here in the region, where we can help use those connections to help open doors in Japan, in, in Japan through Nippon Life, in Hong Kong and uh, China through Yunfeng Financial. So that way, so a large sort of a part of the hurdle is sort of removed where you directly can go get a meeting with in the first place. So I think a lot of the times the biggest hurdle is actually getting the customer to get to meet you in the first place, right? So, that's, so we help solve that big part of the hurdle. Um, also, again, uh, might not be applicable to all companies, but a, a majority of the companies can also benefit from the portfolio itself that we have. So across the three funds in the three locations, we have, I think, between us about 80 or more than 80 companies. Um, so one company can benefit from the experience uh, that other sort of uh, portfolio companies have in sort of expanding outside the re of their home markets, uh, but also sort of use them as uh, they can be potentially your customers, right? <laughs> For services that you're offering. And Mass Mutual itself, I think uh, one, one stat that I like to throw around there is um, uh, about 50% uh, of the companies that MMV has invested in um, are vendors to Mass Mutual apparent code. So when you have sort of a large company like Mass Mutual as your customer, I think you also find it easier to open doors in many, in, for many other clients. Mm. Thank you, Anvesh. So we've come to time and thank you everyone for joining today. At Southeast Asia Connect, we're here for our tech entrepreneurs and investors. We meet the entrepreneurs creating the dream, such as Sanu. We get shown the money such with people such as Anvesh, and we're here to grow to learn. And I must say, Lars, that uh, one of the favorite quotes uh, that's come out of today is, good technology with bad marketing doesn't go anywhere. So thank you, Sunu. And from Anvesh, people can definitely survive without the US as a market, which is wonderful for us to know. And if you want Anvesh's money, uh, you better explain to him, he will give you more than five minutes, but not over 45 minutes, uh, <laughs> what exactly your business does. So stay tuned for our schedule. Our upcoming guests include Ding Peng, who is head of Singapore for CICC, China's largest investment banking group. And for those that have been living under a rock and don't know, everyone's best friend, Gwendolyn Regina Tan, investor, entrepreneur, and now driving VC engagement at Facebook. So they're still to come in the pipeline. Our next episode in a fortnight's time at 5 p.m. on Thursday, same time, uh, will feature Raj at Kaizen Private Equity, one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest human capital edtech investors, and Jan Lembrant, CEO of Epitome, who is actively bridging the skills gap for employees so that they're relevant to the new economy in Industry 4.0. Last. Yeah, fantastic. So I think uh, the hour just flew by. That's always a great sign for fantastic insights, uh, awesome guests and the conversation we had. That's the whole idea of Southeast Asia Connect, connecting ideas, people, um, the money and the ideas. And I hope we all can connect again uh, in 14 days. So thank you, everybody. Southeast Asia Connect. Lars signing out. Signing out. Have a wonderful evening.
Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.